0: Hi, everybody. It's Richard Zwicky on the Green Peak. And joining us this week, we have Bob Hoban, who's a lawyer, but also the co-chair of Clark Hill's Cannabis Industry uh, uh, Committee and Panel. Bob, welcome aboard.
1: That's good to be here. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Exciting yeah. to talk about uh, international cannabis issues, as always.
0: Yeah, you know, well, international and domestic within the U.S., there's so many things that tie together. And... Uh, That's something which a lot of times industry participants don't realize or recognize or, you know, or they realize it and don't take enough of it into account is how all of the rest of the world is going to affect the U.S. with regards to cannabis and how the cannabis, uh, the U.S.'s role does affect everybody else as well. How do you look at, you know, and on that, you know, in the U.S. people, you know, look to legalization someday, but there's a lot of steps in the way and you know we talk about safe banking and decriminalization legalization the then you've got the implementation of a regulatory free, uh, framework and the fda jumping in and then looking out to the global markets but you know right now recently there was the uh, introduction of the climax climb Act as a step how do you look at it progressing
1: first of all who comes up with the names for these acts when they're presented? Because uh, as you as you just stumbled, I've done that many times uh, in trying to describe it. But, uh, you know, the the, the CLIME Act is, is an essential piece that was effectively missing from its, uh, you know, its sister uh, piece of legislation, which is the Safe Banking Act. And much of the criticism surrounding safe banking uh, was that it didn't address capital markets or public markets. And you know what? Uh, we have a roadmap. We have a model. We saw what happened in the rise and then the subsequent fall of the Canadian cannabis influence uh, globally, and, and, and uh, we we know that if you open up the capital markets in the United States, it'll make what look and what, what happened in Canada look very small uh, by way of comparison. Absolutely, um, and, 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 and and unfortunately, um, there just hasn't been a whole lot of focus on it. Now, I don't expect the Crime Act to pass this time around just like the safe banking act has gone through uh the, the house at least six times uh, based uh, on my
0: understanding it's it's a farce how often it's had to go through the process so far and you know people keep counting on it being just around the corner and have done so for years
1: well but, but there is no there's no question about it that something like safe it banking has to happen make, it will happen it has to happen there's no question about it. i mean i i kind of uh, jokingly get these uh, backhanded uh, messages from my partners in DC who are very influential on the lobby side uh, saying, well, safe banking got pulled out again. haha You know, one of those kind of things. And at the end of the day, that is the challenge, right? Is, is we're still not perceived uh, through many mainstream sources as a real industry. And it's almost as if we have a bunch of amateurs lobbying in DC. I'm not saying that's a fact, but But that's the perception from other mainstream lobbyists and other mainstream industries uh, that we really can't advance anything. But there's, of course, a lot of things going on in the world. But at at the end of the day, to to button up this piece, I do believe that uh, a combination of safe banking and the climate Act will ultimately pass. It has to pass. Uh, You can't continue to ignore this. Um, And and we'll see. We saw just yesterday uh, a number of influential senators sent Joe Biden a letter saying, uh, you know, uh, using Joe Biden, Biden pilots. Hey man, what's up? Why haven't you advanced on your campaign promises surrounding cannabis? Yeah, uh, and uh, you know we'll see if that's influential at all. But of course, there's there's bigger fish to fry in Washington D.C. these days. Uh, unfortunately, probably to the detriment uh, of our industry.
0: It's to the detriment of our industry, but it's understandable with you know the the impact of so many of these things on everyday life for so many people that you know priorities are are different than they would have been a couple of years ago. Um, you know, And in w- the climax, just stepping back to that for one second, I mean, you mentioned how it'll be dwarf, you know, the the impact of Canada and in the uh, public markets. And I think that's part of, you know, one of the aspects that people um, generally will appreciate about it is today, a lot of the institutions can't participate on behalf of their clients. With the climax that opens up a lot of the institutions to being able to do so, and that money that's managed by hedge funds and others, all of a sudden comes into the market, and that is transformative.
1: It's, it's transformative for that reason, as you point out. People that are standing on the sidelines, entities, institutional investors, um, mainstream banks that want to participate in this space uh, for a number of reasons, they're all standing there waiting for the federal government to signal some sort of uh, permission because they have. Uh, publicly traded companies and and federal government registrations to protect, uh, and understandably so. But uh, I do believe that the significance of the passage of safe banking, let alone CLIME Act, would be that all of a sudden these groups that are standing on the sidelines, they're all of a sudden participating. And if they're participating, then Washington, D.C. is hearing from interests that they know, and that yes. they know participate on a mainstream, national and global scale already. And I think that is the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. That's the impetus for some semblance of federal legalization, um, because then they're not just hearing from the industry itself and the activists, they're hearing from uh, interests that they know.
0: The major economic drivers within the country are trying to participate and are blocked today.
1: Correct. Correct. Right. And, and many of the folks in the cannabis industry don't like to hear that because it, it it presumes that somehow the cannabis industry can't uh, advocate on behalf of itself and and nor that the, the, the longstanding activist voices in the industry are somehow uh, not relevant. Uh, and they're not not relevant. It's just they're less relevant than, as you point out, the, the, these major actors uh, that the folks in D.C. know.
0: Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. And, you know, <laughs> Taking a step further down the path, uh, when you get to safe, you know, safe will affect the U.S., but in ways much more impo- impactful ways, it'll impact the international trade because one of the issues that occurs is, while a lot of trade, you know, goes through U.S. banks from a uh, from the perspective of payments internationally, even if the product never hits the U.S. shores, with cannabis you have to find ways around the U.S. because the banks just are leery of their exposure. Um you deal a lot with international how often does that come up for you?
1: It comes up almost weekly. In fact, early this morning we had a call with a, a particular Colombian government who engaged with for a number of years yeah. uh and and they're all of a sudden presenting the issue of well, we have kind of danced around the topic of banking for even simple depository accounts for international commerce that's plain touching. Um you know, how can we address it and uh, I I my my team of lawyers, not me uh, in particular as a banking expert, because I'm not, but I I work on a team full of uh, banking attorneys, uh, particularly on the global scale. Uh, We've solved issues in in Uruguay almost five years ago now, Uh uh, when Jeff Sessions was effectively uh, uh, trying to target banks that use the the US-backed monetary uh, financial, electronic financial transfer systems, yep. um, and ultimately help navigate those processes. So, so we deal with that, uh, you know, and, 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 and as we've at least alluded to, I'm engaged by a number of governments around the world, over, over 35 over the last eight years, presently engaged by on an ongoing basis by five, mm-hmm. and looking at these banking issues, uh, how to navigate it. And if you attack it head on, you're not always going to did an answer but if you look at the then you look at various uh, uh, ways to, to, to address the bank's concerns and the regulators concerns but independent of one another you can at least get a navigable pathway and that's uh, that's ultimately uh, many of the concerns I mean I had a client call the other day and asked if they you know how could they open up a, the, uh, an account out of Colombia as an example? Mm -hmm. Um, And then looking at those Colombian banks, they're constrained by the same issues, plan touching versus not plan touching.
0: Yeah, you know, I have a background in Colombia and had to deal with a lot of that. And separately, from a consulting perspective, I've also helped, uh, you know, a couple of organizations who are trading, uh, you know, looking to trade internationally and moving the money around. And I've built a structure for, you know, on behalf of a couple of them that allows it to happen. It's complicated. It's difficult. And... It doesn't even disappear with SAFE coming into play. It just gets a little bit easier. It does. And, and at least, though, a depository
1: account in the United States uh, can exist in a plant-touching basis if SAFE were to go forward, which yes. and that's, that's a major movement forward because you know uh, a lot of people still think that banking is impossible to come by in the cannabis industry, and it's not in the U.S., but it's serviced by, as you well know, Community or credit union banks. One of our right. longstanding clients uh, was recently acquired by Northern Lights Financial. Uh, and you know, that deal is indicative of the banking setup in the United States, but it doesn't involve Citibank, Wells Fargo, or, or the other mainstream banks that, that we'd like to see involved because of the international component.
0: Yeah, and you know, from the from the effect though. If you're like, even in Canada, which has had a marketplace, you know, legalization for a long time by now, banking's still a big problem. If you're dealing with foreign jurisdictions, the banks don't want to deal with you. There, you have real hoops to go through from a compliance perspective on an ongoing basis, and. It's difficult and it's something which is not trivial and you know is not going to go away soon but one of the aspects that is going to fundamentally change the marketplace is the movement within europe towards legalization because the european banks aren't trivial either and they they have a voice and they have sway uh, internationally what do you see happening you know in germany and the uk and elsewhere across europe and how do you think it's going to affect the us market we do have to take a short break and um, we'll be back in a moment with Bob Holman on the Green Peak. The Green Peak. We'll climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. And we're back on the Green Thank Peak you. with Bob Holman, with uh, Clark Hill. And Bob, just before the break, we were talking about all, all things, interna- starting to touch into all things international with regards to banking. And European legalization in Germany and elsewhere is moving forward at a, an increasingly rapid pace. And you know, there's been a lot of challenges, but it seems like the momentum's there now. What happens in Europe is going to affect the US as in banking, but in everything. Um, it is a market of about 370 million people as compared to 270 in the US. And economically as a region, it's so dominant. It's, uh, it's amazing um, in this industry and in every other industry. But what do you think legalization there is going, how is it going to affect the U.S.?
1: That's a great question. So, um, I mean, look, Europe, we had Malta uh, as one of the first, if not the first, uh, European nation to come in and, and outright address the question, question of, of, of outright legalization of the cannabis plan. But Malta is, of course, an island nation, and it's, uh, it's not particularly known for wide-scale agricultural exports as a result thereof. So their angle uh, has always been on a finance and banking angle, uh, if not technology and and extraction, but finance and banking. And I think that that concept is also uh, underlying some of the moves that we saw in Luxembourg recently, Uh uh, where Luxembourg took steps, of course, as well, to uh, recognize the legality of the cannabis plant, but also being a a financial hub. Um, I think those two countries are positioned well in advance of the outright adult use German legalization model, mm-hmm. which is forthcoming, but will take, as I'm told, and, and maybe you have some insight on this, but but years to unfold from a regulatory perspective. But once Germany does that, uh, based on other policies and other unrelated industries, the rest of Western Europe will follow suit. Uh, and I think that places that are set up for banking now in Europe will ultimately... Provide that backdrop, but the interesting thing about Europe, absent the adult use scheme, is it's 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 truly medical. And in the United States, medical marijuana is a misnomer because yeah, it is completely
0: about. completely misused as a term vis-à-vis the rest of the world. Right? it, it, right? it really qualifies it's the
1: purchaser. Yes, yes. Um, so you know, banking in the U.S. if uh, if those entities uh, that are legal in other jurisdictions are choosing to access uh, banking uh, choosing to access capital markets uh, with access to banking because it's legal in that jurisdiction those jurisdictions are already recognized and authorized for at least cross listings in United States public exchanges if not uh, direct listing uh, through Nasdaq with some exceptions there yep. um, so we're 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 looking at the evolution of this but very very conservatively as bankers tend to be and appropriately so uh, and step by step. So I do think that the the fact that banks will a bank don't use dollars in other jurisdictions will cause a predicament. Remember the early days of uh, of Canada where the Canadian dollars were not necessarily flowing into U.S.-based plant-touching operations. Well, that of course. didn't last very long, right? Of course. Everybody wanted to find
0: a way around as fast as possible because you know the profit opportunity was massive.
1: Exactly. So so we'll, we'll see a similar uh, policy creep or uh, creative exceptions that are uh, are, are, are effectively uh, uh, originated in the U.S. banking markets once Germany goes forward.
0: Yeah. And, you know, the German market example is going to be leading in many because it's the major economic engine within Europe. You know, it's going to lead a lot of the other countries, regardless of their own paths through the process. But, even from the day they announce, you're looking at you know at least two years for regulations to come into effect. And prior to that, you still have to pass the laws and opt out of the international treaties to be able to pass the laws. It doesn't happen overnight. And I think that expectation of it being rapid is often a challenge for anybody who's looking to participate in the industry because rapid is not a timeline that uh, really aligns with – Two, three, four years, but that's reasonable.
1: That's right, and and, and governments are, are are notoriously slow at, at everything they do because they're just such massive uh, agency and, and organization structures to begin with. But um, but but as we did see in Canada, when there is a door open, uh, the folks that do possess the dollars will uh, figure out uh, legitimate, lawful, but yet creative ways to drive that money into a market. So uh, so I, I expect it to be perhaps a little more rapid than, uh, than if a government was driving the discussion, but at the same time, um, you know, slow, relatively speaking.
0: Yeah. And, you know, the government process is two steps. And the second step is one that people, you know, and who haven't been through the process um, are shocked to learn about. You know, when I worked with Peru, and the government there to help draft the act legalizing cannabis for medical purposes, that was relatively fast from the day that the commission was formed to passing the law was less than nine months, nine and a half months. And the real breakthroughs all happened in the last three. But after that, from the date I provided them first draft on a comprehensive regulatory framework for the government, uh, for for the, all the ministries, which uh, was about three, four months later, it took over two years for that to work through the process and actually come to the point of publication, and then another six months to being in place, that was normal for a regulatory framework—two and a half, almost three years—and in that pro- time, everybody's excited to get going, but the market stalled, and it's—it's it's a challenge for anybody who's looking to participate. But when we're going through it, you know. How do you think that slow pace of legalization in the U.S. vis-a-vis the rest of the world, because the U.S. is falling behind, is going to impact um, the U.S.'s place with regards to IP and medical participation globally? Because medical really means something globally.
1: Yes, it does. Uh, as we said, uh, very different than, than the terminology used in the United States concerning medical um, look the United States is the United States we are we are the holy grail of consumers yep. uh, you know, and uh, I think Europe is a, is a close second there yep. in terms of you know accessing
0: that population but the but, US is a know, more homogenous market where Europe is fractured no matter which way you look at it
1: it is and, and it's uh, governing bodies uh, at mm-hmm. the European Union level at least they do tend to follow the lead of our FDA so presumably any semblance of legalization, domestic distribution that is federally authorized will have a fda component to it and whatever that fda component ultimately ends up being uh will make no mistake about it be adopted by the rest of the world uh and then you know everyone's sitting back waiting to access the u.s capital markets anyway if not already accessing them because uh, what they're doing is legal in their respective jurisdictions so I i don't think the u.s is falling behind so much as it's just not doing anything. It's not capitalizing on the present opportunity. But I do believe that when the US decides that it's going to uh, move forward and whatever semblance that is, whether it's you know the creep of banking and the climax that we talked about, whether <laughs> it's something like the States Act, uh, or it's a combination of the social equity and social justice acts that are being talked about by the Democrats in, in the Senate today, which does not create a commercial industry, by the way, not even close. Um, we, we don't know. I, when we legalize it here in the United States, if it's the States Act or if it's a combination of social, social justice, criminal justice reform combined with a, uh, a, a de- or rescheduling element, um, that's still going to take years, as you point out, to unfold. Remember, Trump signed the, the, the largest cannabis reform in U.S. history. He signed that in December of 2018. And the FDA still, still has not enacted rules around cannabinoids extracted from the cannabis plant. So at the end of the day, it's not
0: just uh, one, it's not just one department, right? It is so many departments that are involved and have to coordinate the documentation. The bureaucracy is amazing.
1: But it's, it's, a, it's amazing. That's one way to put it. And you you have direct experience dealing with these agencies, and that's when you start at the legislative level and by way of advisory or consulting, you talk about what agencies are going to be responsible or delegated authority for rulemaking. But as a lawyer, it frustrates me because mm-hmm. rulemaking is intended to be a quick process. Rulemaking is intended to be exactly. a process that can turn out a dime, so to speak. Uh, and we've seen that enacted in Colombia on five separate regulatory changes. We've mm-hmm. seen that uh, in various states across the U.S. with uh, having to adapt uh, and adapt to uh, real-time market conditions and or uh, consumer conditions. Um, but why it takes so long to develop the initial regulations is always a problem. And, and I think it's attributable in large part because each country, uh, each jurisdiction wants to so-called reinvent the wheel. Yes. Uh, when the wheel does exist already, you can borrow and learn lessons from other countries and other jurisdictions, even though culturally they may not be apples to apples. Uh, there's still guidance out there and I feel like uh, many of these countries turn a blind eye intentionally so towards that that guidance
0: yeah and you know part of it is none of the none of the guidelines that anybody's put in place so far have really been perfect and the other is everybody's looking at the sphere and wondering how they can polish it to make it a little bit more spherical um (laughs) Bob uh we do have to take one more short break but we'll be back in a moment with Bob Hoban on the Green Peak The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. And we're back on The Green Peak with Bob Holman, um, with Clark Hill. And Bob, you know, we've talked about a lot of the different aspects of legalization and the development around the rest of the world. But um, as the markets open up, what do U.S. operations need to be mindful of that's happening elsewhere today that's going to affect them and things that are happening in the U.S. that really um, are going to be in conflict with the way business is done internationally in this industry.
1: The the fundamental difference is operators that exist outside of the U.S. uh, are more sophisticated. And they're more sophisticated because, in large part, they have to operate by international and nationalized standards. The United States operators in the marijuana field, of course, don't have to follow those standards because it remains, as we all well know, a Schedule One substance when we talk about uh, marijuana uh, mm-hmm. being distributed and produced. So, to have the sophistication and the ability to innately build into your company compliance with international standards for phytosanitary health and safety, consumer protection, and trade. Uh, let alone taxation and and tariff codes around the world, to have those built into your business plan, um, uh, that's a far cry from anything that the U.S. operators have had to do. In fact, uh, some people would argue, I don't know if I agree with this, but it's a sentiment I hear, that U.S. operators almost survive in spite of themselves because of the insatiable demand for these products, even though prices drop around the world. So I think that the U.S. operators, who oftentimes say to me, well, why do I care about what's happening in Germany or around the world? Well, here's why you should care, because those companies are beginning to aggregate. Their, be, their, their capital is not from that particular jurisdiction oftentimes. It's usually globally raised, and there's, there's a U.S. influence or fingerprint on those dollars. And those dollars will, will assuredly if not the organizations themselves, come into the United States. And when they do, they're going to demand better. And that's not to say that cannabis companies in the US aren't doing well. It's just they they, they operate, as we've said, in spite of themselves sometimes uh, because of the fact that the product effectively sells itself.
0: Yeah, so that, it's one of the, that, it's, that, I think it's one of the only products where you don't have to explain to people why they want it.
1: Exactly. and, and But it's also a reason why it seems like branding doesn't always work because you're buying yep. an experience, not a product. And uh, you know the experiences vary by our, our mood and what we're doing that day, and it's not always going to be consistent. But that's neither here nor there. Except to say, getting back to that your core point, uh, that's what the U.S. operators have to be ready for. If you take a U.S.-based multi-state operator uh, or a SPAC uh, that has accumulated a bunch of assets, they don't necessarily both of those scenarios know how to create those companies so that they work in synergy with one another across state lines. Of course, not shipping product across straight lines, but operations across state lines. So they've all been sort of wonky. And furthermore, the infrastructure is, is far more comprehensive than need be if there was indeed interstate commerce allowed. Uh, and by the way, that's an interesting battlefront that we'll see in the debate for federal legalization. You'll have companies like a company that I serve on the board of directors of, that's Glasshouse Brands, positioned to grow more cannabis at a lower cost than just about anybody in the in the country they want interstate commerce where they oh, are multi-state multi-state operators have 40 million dollars invested in every single state they they operate in just in uh, infrastructure and and cultivation alone of course that number's uh, you know a, a bit of an exaggeration but it's not far off so then you have this inefficiency that would exist in the face of federal legalization. So that debate will be telling. And when the U.S. operators are arguing about that debate, uh, the international players and their, their dollars and their their uh, their infrastructure will come in um, and will say, well, look, this is how we do it globally. And global is the standard. So, uh, you know, uh, buck up, buttercup, for lack of a better way to put it.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I've, I've heard about some states looking at Putting in place additional regulations, which raises theoretically the standard of production in their state, but it really creates barriers to inter- interstate bro- uh, trade down the road. And you know that's possibly going to happen because it's happened in other industries as well. But before we close, um, you know, one final question from a legal liability perspective about dealing with U.S. operations today is: when legalization happens and FDA regulations come into effect. Obviously, also uh, federal liability uh, comes into play. How are firms, and this is a compliance issue, uh, you know, how often do you see firms looking and considering how their actions today, uh, you know, the testing standards that are not necessarily at FDA or global levels, and the use of compounds in some plants, uh, what liability and how are they handling the fact that in the future they have liability issues for? going forward once the laws are passed. For their actions today, I'm phrasing it poorly, but the actions they're taking today are going to be uh, liable in the future once full legalization comes into play um, from a compliance perspective, but also in terms of product safety. How are companies you're dealing with addressing that?
1: Well, they're addressing that by doing their very best to comply with the production of extracts, for example, for infused mm-hmm. products and, and oils that are uh, at least the equivalent of an API, an active pharmaceutical grade ingredient, um, and that, of course, is, is is a natural fit for the type of production facilities that, that are being built in the United States. Mm-hmm. But you know, that, it begs the question for me: of do does anyone in the existing U.S.-based infrastructure uh, stand a chance? To truly be an ingredient supplier to pharmaceutical companies, research organizations, and the like around the world, or are they simply a subset, which is effectively more, more akin to the spirits or the alcohol industry, um, meaning it's a supply chain that exists, but the you know the, the, the products that are produced within that supply chain are meant for consumers that qualify at a certain level but not at the pharmaceutical or, or, or you know, pharmaceutical formulatory level. So that creates an interesting thing. Uh, and I think because of the practices to date, they almost put themselves in the box of the former, meaning that they are just consumer packaged good producers and supply chain participants, rather than perhaps the much more profitable uh, pharmaceutical lane that has really yet to develop in the U.S.
0: Yeah, the pharmaceutical lane in the long term is much more profitable and uh, growth has a lot more growth potential than uh, the consumer lane um, for a variety of reasons. And, you know, I always go back from the other point you made, I always go back to the fact, you know, from a production perspective, Starbucks doesn't grow any coffee in the U S and Coca-Cola doesn't uh, produce sugar in the U S yet they're key components in all the consumer products and the brand and everything else around it. And cannabis will be the same. Um, Bob, Unfortunately, we're out of time for today, but I'd like to thank you for joining us. And people who want to learn more, I know you publish in Forbes and also you write uh, in a variety of other spots. Where's the best place to reach you and to follow, uh, you know, your thoughts and writings?
1: Uh, LinkedIn is perhaps the, the the common denominator of all sources. Uh, we we always republish uh, what uh, both I write and, and do uh, by way of content production and the extension of my team. So, uh, that's, uh, that's something that I'd encourage people to take a look at. Uh, and that's Robert Hoban on LinkedIn.
0: Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us today on The Green Peak. And I uh, hope to have you on again soon uh, with regards to a whole array of issues we didn't even have the chance to get to uh, get to in this call, but we'll be able to in the future. Thanks for joining it's us. my Bob.
1: absolute pleasure. I'd uh, love to do it again.
0: Yeah. And thanks to everybody for listening. We'll be back again with you next week. I'm Richard Zwicky on The Green Peak.